Like within a matter of weeks, they're wanting to move in. You're getting married. I mean, there there's that end of the spectrum, but then there's the more subtle stuff where maybe you're not moving in quickly, but you're still having those feelings. Like it's just, you know, being in touch constantly. That's definitely a red flag. And I, you know, or like maybe they're starting to be kind of subtly controlling, like, what are you doing? You know, like the being in touch with you constantly is, could be a, a subtle form of control and trying to find out what you're doing, who you're with. Um, but in the beginning, it's just like, oh my God, this person loves me. They want to talk to me all day long. This is episode number 492 with Shelly Pumphrey, How to Recover from Narcissistic Abuse. Hi, everybody. I'm Sandy Weiner, and welcome back to Last First Date Radio, where we believe it is never too late to go on your last first date. And if you would like some support on your journey to lasting love, I wrote a book for you, and it's called Becoming a Woman of Value, How to Thrive in Life and Love. And it's filled with 30 tips and stories and exercises, and they're all designed to help you step more fully into your value. You can find it now on Amazon for Kindle or paperback. And this week's tip from the book is step number 22, communicate clearly and graciously. I'm in the middle of launching a communications course, which actually might be live by the time this airs. And um, it is such an important part of relationships when we learn how to communicate what we really feel and what we really need and do it with grace and not anger or in your face or demand it is such a glue that helps us really know if a person is aligned with who we are and what we want and need so my challenge to you this week is if you are somebody who struggles with clear communication and you tend to be a little passive aggressive or hold things back and then implode, just really take that pause and really figure out what am I needing here? What am I feeling here? And try to just communicate one thing clearly and see how it goes. And before I bring Shelly on, I would love to invite you to our Facebook group. It's called Your Last First Date. It is a place where you will be supported on your journey to your last first date. We have seven amazing monitors who keep this group running beautifully, very much unlike most groups that are designed for singles, for dating. It's for single women over 40. And what I love about the group so much is that people learn by just being a member. You learn how to speak up. You learn how to be a better dater. It is a positive place for support. So join us at your last first date. And now for my guest, Shelly. Pumphrey is a returning guest. She has a master's degree and is a, is a psychotherapist. She is globally recognized uh, a re relationship coach and author. She has over 27 years of clinical experience. That's a lot of years. And she is known for her work with trauma, with adult attachment, and with narcissistic abuse recovery. She's the author of Insight is 2020, How to Trust Yourself to Protect Yourself from Narcissists, Bullies, and Toxic People. Go out and get her book. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Shelly. Thank you, Sandy. It's so nice to be back. I always love the work that you're doing. 
Oh, thank you. And same here. I love the work you do on attachment and I'll post the link to our last episode in the show notes. So let's, let's get down to, first of all, congratulations on your book release. I know it's like birthing a child. So I know it's yeah, like so it much work. Uh, yeah. So this, not only is it a, a labor of it's a labor, but it's a labor of love. And I know that, you know, doing this work and being able to share this kind of information is so critical. So let's start with how do you define narcissistic abuse? Because it's a word that gets bandied about so much these days. Yeah. You know, I, I agree with you. I think there's a lot of there's increasing knowledge of it. I think because we have social media and the internet, like now everybody's ex is a narcissist, it feels like. And I think that there are a lot of people out there who could have traits of narcissism or another personality disorder. And then there are those who are actually diagnosable. So what I first want to say is, you know, narcissistic abuse, you know, that term is kind of what what we all know or use and throw around, but the actual clinical term to describe these types of relationships is actually pathological love relationships. And that term was coined by Sandra Brown. She is one of the kind of forerunners and, you know, big researchers in the field of working with these kinds of relationships. Um, And the reason we like to say pathological love relationships is because narcissistic personality disorder um usually there there's like a there's a cluster of several personality disorders where we have narcissism um antisocial personality disorder and um oh my gosh why am i blocking uh borderline and people will often have traits of of all three of these or one or two of them so you can see similarities or kind of crossovers in it. So it's not always just purely narcissistic abuse, even though people can actually be diagnosed with that, but you might run into people who have some of these other traits. And what I always like to tell people is, unless you're a therapist, it's not your job to diagnose them. And don't get so worried about like, is this person a narcissist or not? One of the things, and we'll probably talk about this here in this interview is it's really good to know the red flags to look for in somebody who's narcissistic or maybe a sociopath. But what's more important is to understand your own red flags and how do you know that you're in danger because of somebody's behaviors? And it doesn't even matter if they're a narcissist or, you know, have some traits of it or not. So I definitely want to kind of talk more about that. But, you know, so I guess kind of coming back to your question of, what is a narcissist? Um, If we just focus solely on that, a narcissistic person typically has a lack of empathy. Um, They usually, there's different types of narcissists. So the one that we often think of is what we call a grandiose narcissist. And that's somebody who you kind of, you can sometimes pick them out kind of quickly, unless you're dating dating one. Sometimes that's a little harder. We'll talk about that in a minute, but you know, usually they're, they're kind of full of themselves. They think that they're better than other people. They might think that, um, you know, they have these really special and unique gifts. They're smarter than others, or maybe the rules that apply to other people don't necessarily apply to them. Um, 
they, you know, can often be very charismatic as well. So they're kind of that the life of the party and they just have this um, kind of magnetic pull to them and um, they can be pretty self-centered. Um, so that's kind of, you know, on the surface, what you might look for with a narcissist, but there's also something called a covert or vulnerable narcissist who may not be the life of the party. Um, they actually present in a different way where they still have some of those basic things of like lacking empathy, um, still thinking that they're superior to others, but their behavior will come out in, in very passive aggressive ways. Like, like one that I dated would often say, um, you know, like his way of making sure he was known to be superior was like, he'd say something really random that God, nobody on earth would know. And, and I would be like, Oh, I didn't know about that. He'd say, Oh, I'm surprised you didn't know that. That was often a term that came out. So it was this very like kind of veiled attempt at saying, I know all these things, but you don't, you know? So, and, and they often will like not be very social or not want to interact with everybody in the party. They're kind of sitting off in the corner secretly thinking they're better than everybody but they feel a ton of anxiety about being around other people. Um, and they can also sometimes appear more vulnerable or more self-reflective, whereas a grandiose narcissist may not look that way. So those are a little bit trickier to spot, but in general, those are some of the traits to look for in a narcissist. Interesting. And I think people get these confused. I think we often think of the grandiose narcissist and it's so completely obvious, but um, from the stories that have been shared with me and what I've experienced myself, it's the charm, the charisma, the life of the party, because we get bored with dating people who are boring, which is often secure attachment. Right? Right. And right. We miss those signs and we're like, oh, we're so used to drama and we're so used yeah. to from our childhood that love is you know, all these ups and downs, and that's what makes it exciting and passionate. And once they have you, and actually this is similar to uh, somebody I just recently dated, that he came on super strong. And then when I wasn't ready to basically move in with him after two dates, <laughs> which is so ridiculous, he disappeared. He stopped talking to me. And so it's like, I want it my way. And I, I, I dated somebody many years ago. I mean, now I recognize the signs really quickly, but when you don't yet know, it's very easy, even if you're informed and skilled and know better to get pulled into the charms of a narcissist. So tell us your own story. I have a feeling you mentioned that you dated someone. So Tell us a little bit about that and why you're so interested in helping others recover from narcissistic mm. abuse, abuse. Yeah, well, I have had the very uh, unfortunate experience of dating several narcissists in my life. Um, and I, it was very interesting to me because here I am a therapist. I mean, I've worked with this stuff. I've worked with domestic violence relationships my entire career, like 27 years worth of it. And I could sit here in a therapy office with a client and pick it out, you know, within a few minutes of talking to somebody, 
But for some reason, I kept attracting these narcissists into my life and allowing them to stay. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? I couldn't understand what I was getting wrong and why I kept having these experiences. And it wasn't until later on in my life where I ended up marrying somebody I thought was like the love of my life and did not realize he was a covert narcissist and was just completely blown away, just shocked. And I realized that I actually had seen all the red flags from the beginning, which is often what people experience. Like we see the red flags, they're they're there very quickly. But what happens is we often ignore them, we dismiss them, or sometimes we're just naive and don't even realize what that is. And so, you know, my story is that I was just devastated. And I also was, you know, had decided I'm not good. This has to be fixed within me. And I also want to help other people heal. And so I did a deep dive into the research on this. And I realized that there are a ton of people on the internet and YouTube and, you know, podcasts and everything. There's a lot of survivor. We, I'd like to say survivors turn experts in this. And we're talking about narcissistic abuse, but a lot of us are just kind of regurgitating the information that we're learning from everybody else on the internet. And it's not that a lot of this information isn't helpful. I mean, none of these people are trying to do you wrong by, by helping you heal, but it's not very research backed or trauma informed. And so I started doing my research to work on my book, Insight is 2020, and there's a couple of things that I realized. One of the things, and this was very true for me, is that there, there's been research done on personality, and there are three traits in particular that we have in our personality, and a, a research study that was done by Sandra Brown showed that 63% of women who had these traits ended up being the ones that got stuck with narcissists and allowing the relationship to continue. And so those traits were that they were had a high degree of conscientiousness, agreeableness, and what we call low harm avoidance. So these are typically people with a lot of empathy, a lot of compassion. They're very like, there's also a lot of loyalty, like loyalty to a relationship, willing to overlook all the bullshit behaviors that somebody might be, you know, that this narcissist is doing, like be very forgiving. Like you're like a really nice person, let's say. You're a very compassionate, forgiving person. And these traits can be really wonderful in the world. But when it comes to relationships, especially with these kinds of, of partners, you can overlook the red flags forever and get stuck in these relationships. And then the trauma sets in when you're being gaslit and abused. And then you have this double whammy of like really having a difficult time making a decision um, that would suit your best interest and whether or not you should leave this relationship. So that was one of the pieces that really kind of lit me up in helping people understand that this isn't always about your codependent. It's not about you having a trauma history, even though those things can be true but the majority of people actually are not codependent, nor do they have a trauma history or significant trauma history, but they have these personality traits. So that's kind of where I'm at now is I really wanna educate people about the trauma pieces of this um, and those personality styles that can really make you um, at risk 
um, for being abused. It's not just that there are all these people walking around, it's a certain type that the narcissist attracts and that, you know, we, the ones who stay have certain qualities. I, I remember doing a lot of research when I got divorced about dating emotionally dangerous people. And um, I think it was Sandra Brown actually who mm -hmm. wrote that book, right? So that was, that was so important to me. I, and there's a companion workbook to it. And I, I just remember reading, it's not just about the other person. It's like the first part of the book was about how did you grow up and what did you see as so-called normal, which allows us to overlook bad behaviors. Because if we saw bad behaviors that were normal in our childhood, then those behaviors are not the line in the sand that we, we say, no way, you cannot treat me this way. I, and I find that people who were raised in a much more uh, loving environment where the love was clear, where they felt loved, they felt seen, they felt heard, which is not that common, <laughs> um, that they were much more able to just say, are you freaking kidding me? Which you know was something I had to learn because I didn't have that experience growing up that you know, what was normal, what wasn't, where, where boundaries were crossed all the time in my family. And, um, and I see this with women who grew up witnessing unhealthy behaviors in their family of origin, um, that they often work really hard to make a relationship work because that's what they had to do in childhood. So yeah, I would love to hear you your thoughts on that. Uh, well, I, I love that you shared that. And, and I think that what I want to really make clear is that in, in Sandra Brown, like she did this research study with Purdue University and they really, you know, we're kind of looking the, at this as there are kind of two groups of people. The majority of the, of the women that were in this research, 63% of them, did not have what we call high ACEs events. So there was a study done called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Scale where it measures like trauma and loss in childhood. So when I, when I use that term, what you know, it, I'm referring to is this, the majority, 63% did not come from homes like you just described. They did come from homes that might've been loving. They had secure attachments. They had not been exposed to a ton of significant trauma. And the, but, the, but then there's this 37% that might've been the group that you're talking about that does come from, you know, where there, there is probably growing up and seeing the, the poor boundaries and, you know, suffering through different kinds of trauma and then not knowing like what is right or you already have some pre-existing trauma that's coming in and informing the way that you you know your brain may works or makes decisions so you know there's kind of two groups and i think what we often look at in this you know if we're if we're looking at all the people that talk about narcissistic abuse usually it's like we're all talking to that 37 percent you know and there's a lot of messaging around you've learned it in your childhood or you're being codependent, you need to learn how to strengthen your boundaries and that kind of stuff. But the reality is, is there's a majority of people who don't come from that. And so it's important to look at both. Mm -hmm. So that 63%, it is so much about their personality traits. And it could be that that other group does have this similar personality traits too, 
but they also have some of that background. Um, but so do you know what I, does that make sense? Yeah. Like, I want to make sure that other, you know, our personality that, and the other thing I want to say is personality is hardwired into us. These are traits that we are born with. And so, you know, what you're, here's a distinction to make. Like if you're saying somebody's codependent, they could actually have these super traits of agreeableness and conscientiousness. And there's a distinction there. So codependent is you kind of lose your sense of self. You're, you don't have good boundaries. Um, you're getting lost in this person. You're enabling their behaviors. Somebody that has the personality traits of agreeableness and conscientiousness, they're, they might look like they're doing a lot of people pleasing. They're being very nice and flexible and, and easygoing with this person's bad behaviors, but they could be really strong, independent people. They have a lot of boundaries in place in other areas of their life. And so when you're saying, just work on this, start changing these, these codependent things that are going on to a person who's not suffering from codependency, it's their hardwired personality traits. You cannot change those personality traits. You might be able to make a little bit of a dent, but it's really about learning how to manage those traits, you know, to understand that you have them and then you have to learn how to manage them. So that's kind of where this goes wrong when we're looking at this codependency kind of model versus ignoring the fact that this is just in your personality. You're gonna to have to learn how to live with this and it's not necessarily healable. It's not even a, a bad thing. It's just a, a dangerous thing if you're in these relationships and you don't know how to manage it. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And it's interesting. I, I think that when you talk about conscientiousness and agreeableness and being loyal, a lot of people, are loyal to, without any uh, expectations of the other person. It's like they, they're willing to overlook a lot of things. And I remember I had a client many years ago who ended up with a, a narcissistic husband who was very much in his head, really like no empathy, just ignored her a lot of the time. And she said, I grew up in such a loving home. I don't really understand how I ended up with this guy. Well, what I discovered in coaching though, and as much as it wasn't a, like a, a typical, it wasn't an abusive home in any way, what she experienced was a, a mother who was not well. And she had to suppress who she was to live in her home. So, you know, be quiet, get good grades, just behave. And so her personality was kind of squished yeah. and squelched. And she learned to be a people pleaser, which is a, yeah. a form of codependency, but not because she grew up with any kind of abuse. She grew up in a very loving mm -hmm. home, the only child of loving parents. Just these little T traumas also can affect us, you know? And so I think what we also don't always see is that if we move a lot or we have a sick sibling or we have something in our family that is disruptive in childhood, it also sets the tone for certain things. So I think a lot yeah. of people look at big, big traumas or yeah. you know, really dysfunctional families um, that are more obvious. Um, so I think, you know, this is, it's obviously a bigger topic and worthy of a huge discussion, but I think it's interesting that these personality traits that are hardwired make us more susceptible 
and we don't need to have big trauma to attract these people. Yeah, and I think it's been, I've I've talked to a lot of people who just have these aha moments and it it was, you know, similar to my experience of like, oh my gosh, so this this is the missing piece because there's a lot of shame involved and I cannot tell you how many therapists, in particular, therapists, teachers, nurses, helping professionals who have, t- typically have a lot of those traits or empaths also, people who identify as empaths, um, they all have those personality traits. Well, many of them have those personality traits. And they would come, you know, when I was looking for people to interview for this book, they would talk about like the shame that they felt like how is it that I can be okay in so many areas of my life and this area I cannot get wrong or I can't get right. And, you know, it's this understanding of these traits that is just so eye-opening for people because nobody really knows about this. Um, So yeah, it's really important for people to understand that part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So let's talk about some of the red flags. I think it's important to know who you are and what makes you more susceptible. What are some of the red flags that show up when there is a partner or potential partner who could be a narcissist? Typically what happens with narcissists is there's a cycle. And in the beginning, things start with the love bombing is, is the term that we use, which many of the listeners probably know that term. But, you know, that's in the beginning where narcissists, they will shower you with love and what's going on for them is they are in a, in a, a cycle of, of idealizing you. So what will often happen is you will feel like, oh my God, I've just met my soulmate. This person is amazing. We have everything in common. And one red flag that, that people often miss is how fast the relationship seems to move in the beginning. And like your example is hilarious. I mean, not hilarious, it's actually disturbing, but that's a very clear example of a narcissist, like within two dates, they want to move in with you. And sometimes you get that very obviousness, this, where it's like within a matter of weeks, they're wanting to move in, you're getting married. I mean, there, there's that end of the spectrum, but then there's the more subtle stuff where maybe you're not moving in quickly, but you're still having those feelings. Like it's just, you know, being in touch constantly. That's definitely a red flag. And I, you know, or like maybe they're starting to be kind of subtly controlling, like, what are you doing? You know, like the being in touch with you constantly is, could be a a subtle form of control and trying to find out what you're doing, who you're with. Um, But in the beginning, it's just like, oh my God, this person loves me. They want to talk to me all day long. So talks like that in the beginning where it's, you know, they're saying, you're, God, you're just like better than anybody I've ever met. Um, No one else has been like you, you know, and definitely moving quicker than the relationship should. And the thing is, is this person could be your quote unquote soulmate. He could be the most perfect partner for you, but you are not going to know that in the first few weeks, if not the first year, even couple of years. I mean, it happens a lot. These, they can be very subtle and you can also be overlooking these traits. So I always tell people, do not move in, do not go get married until you have spent a minimum of a year with somebody and get really good at listening to your red flags. 
So, so those are some red flags kind of in the beginning, but I think what we want to look at is some of the things that can happen as you move on in the relationship. And so, you know, those are, you know, when you move beyond that initial love bombing kind of phase, um, and I should mention one part of that that's really important for people to know is something that narcissists do is called mirroring. And what they do, and this is why it can feel like you've met your soulmate, is they are incredibly skilled at finding everything out about you and picking up on all these nuances with you and then pretending like they are into all that stuff too. They will match your languaging. They will match your interests, your hobbies, um, all the things that you like, they'll like too. And this is why it's so hard. And this is why you must, 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 must take your time in getting to know these people because you don't know if that's the perfect person or if it's somebody that's mirroring everything that you love about or that you like about life, right? So take your time with that. And, you know, it's, this is a dumb example, but maybe they're like, you know, I had somebody who said, oh, I'm so into all the spiritual, you know, spiritual stuff and yoga. Well, take, take them up on that, you know, have some conversations, take them to some events and see what really plays out. Cause if, see if they can walk their talk essentially, you know, because they may not be able to when the rubber hits the road, right? Um, some of the later red flags are things like gaslighting. This is one of the biggest things. And that's where, you know, something will happen where they turn everything back on you. You start to feel crazy. You start to question your reality. You know, a good example is um, you're out with your friends and you come home and all of a sudden this person, the narcissistic person is blaming you for not checking in and, you know, a tells you that you've been cheating and you're like, that's crazy. I've been with my friends all night and you're super confused. And then two weeks later, you find out this person's been cheating on you. You know, that's kind of a blatant example, but gaslighting is where they're turning stuff back on you. And you, sometimes you're just kind of shocked, like, oh my God, what just happened? Um, another thing is where there's endless, endless arguments that net, it's like this, we call it, there's a word for it called word salad, where they'll start nitpicking or start an argument about something. And then it just goes and it's, it goes and goes and goes from one topic to the next. And I mean, you're like, what? I, you don't even know where it started or what happened, but all you know is hours or days later, you're still in this argument with them. Um, so those are some of the more, the more complicated dynamics that start to happen later on. And I think the big one to look out for is just the lack of empathy too. Like, does this person really seem to care? Um, you know, if you're sick, what do they do when they're sick, when you're sick? In the beginning, they might treat you like a queen, bring you chicken noodle soup and take good care of you. But later on, you may notice that they do nothing for you or that you cry and they go on about their day. So you really want to look for, you know, moments like that where they may seem like they're lacking in empathy. That's a big red flag. So I want to just pause for a minute, Sandy, and just say those are some kind of the bigger, there's so many red flags to look for, but those are some of the biggies to look for in the other person. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Music Unlimited. You can listen to over 70 million songs and thousands of playlists and stations. 
Plus, you can now stream your favorite podcasts like Last First Date Radio. You can listen to any song, anytime, anywhere, on any of your devices, your smartphone, your tablet, your PC or Mac, Fire TV, and any Alexa-enabled devices like the Amazon Echo. Get Amazon Music Unlimited for free for 30 days. Just head on over to getamazonmusic.com forward slash last first date to learn more and claim this offer. For people who are bored with the dating, the people they've been dating and they find these people that are charming and they do set some clear boundaries, you know, do, do you think that it can be done for most people that they can sort of keep themselves a little bit distant from falling in love with someone like this? I would not recommend it ever. <laughs> right. Okay. I had a feeling you'd say I that. Think, <laughs> I, I think, and there's a reason, I mean, part of it is we could have so much fun that we get all the chemicals going on, the oxytocin and, and all the feel good chemicals that increase our bond with this person, even if we're trying to set that boundary. And we're dealing with people who lack, who are lacking in empathy, maybe lack a conscience if they're more on the sociopathic side of things. And you just don't really know what you're getting yourself into down the line. So, you know, I get, you know, I think everybody has the right to make their own, you know, choices, obviously, but I would say personally do not proceed, but I could say proceed <laughs> with caution. <laughs> no, I, I agree with you. I think unless you have like ninja skills, which even most people don't have, even if you're really educated, just like you said, you were a therapist for so many years and you were repeating these behaviors, you know, and yeah. I think you can be very informed and your head and your heart are not connected. And yeah, it's, it's, um, it's really hard to not fall for the charm that shows up in the beginning. Mm -hmm. I mean, my, my husband came on so strong that I kept pushing him off. He wanted to get engaged in like six weeks, I think. I think I pushed him off to two months. That was like, like a big deal, but I, I was vulnerable. I didn't really know myself and, you know, but there were red flags in my head, but I didn't really know what a red flag was in my twenties. Yeah. You know, I didn't know yeah, what that totally. clear sign was. So, you know, we, and, and I don't feel shame about it. I know I did the best I could at the time. And I really encourage anybody who's listening, not to beat themselves up. Like you said, the shame is really very destructive. Um, but yeah, so let's, so you, you mentioned what happens in the beginning and also as you move on, um, are there other red flags to look for? Yeah. The, the biggest red flag is what we call cognitive dissonance. And this is a word again, that nobody really talks about, but what, but most of you, if you've experienced this, will know exactly what it is. So what happens is as you get to know this narcissistic person, you start to see their Jekyll and Hyde personality. And you have moments where you're just totally in love with them. Everything's great. And then you have moments where you're fearing, you know, you're fearing for your life or you loathe them, you know? So I like to say like, it's where it, cognitive dissonance, like if you just looking at the 
the definition of it is when you have two opposing beliefs in your head, in your mind simultaneously, and it creates a source of kind of internal conflict or anxiety because you have these two things in opposition. So what happens in these relationships is you start to see like, okay, here's this really great behavior that he's had or she's had, and here's this really horrible behavior. And I continue to move forward, even though there's these horrible behaviors or, you know, I love him. I loathe him. Everything's great together. Everything's horrible together. And so people get, start to get stuck in these relationships because they develop cognitive dissonance. And this is what keeps people from being able to move on. They get, you know, it starts out where you start to question that his behaviors or her behaviors and say, hmm, that's really weird. That doesn't add up with, you know, this person saying they're this really, you know, amazing human being that gives to the homeless. And then um, all of a sudden they're like taking money from, you know, his dying grandma or something, I don't know, some random thing, but, you know, you start to see the inconsistencies and instead of allowing yourself to see like, oh, this is inconsistent. This person is not who he or she says they are. And instead you, you go along with it. And this is where that conscientiousness, the agreeableness start to come into play where you start to think, oh, it's okay. I mean, I can forgive that, you know? So there's all this trauma that starts to develop. Cognitive dissonance is the number one trauma symptom that people, that survivors of these relationships will start to develop. So if you're starting to have those mixed feelings, those, those confusing thoughts, the, you know, it's this dichotomous kind of thinking that you're experiencing, that should be your gigantic red flag that you are in a pathological love relationship and that you need to get help to be able to leave. Because once we're engaged in that cognitive dissonance, it just starts to build upon itself and get worse. And what happens is over time, especially when you have this high amount of agreeableness or conscientiousness, you start to be upset with yourself. Like, I'm not this person. I don't believe that abuse should happen in relationships. I don't believe that my partner should cheat on me. Yet I stay and I'm abused. Yet I stay and they cheat on me. That's the cognitive dissonance that happens. And, and what happens is there's, there have been studies that show that people that are experiencing cognitive dissonance have the same kind of stuff going on in their brain neurologically or, that um, happens with PTSD. So it is a symptom of trauma. Um, so that's kind of like one of the, I like to, I like to look at it as like we have external red flags and that's the red flags we talked about earlier of what to look for in another partner. And then the internal red flags of what's going on inside of me that I need to pay attention to whether or not I care or know that this person is narcissistic or a sociopath. So the, the cognitive dissonance is number one. And then, you know, one of the things I talk about in my book too, is like, how do I know that I'm experiencing trauma? What does trauma feel like in our bodies? You know, and the other part is the trauma then starts to show or cause physical effects in our bodies. So I like to talk a lot about, um, you know, people who are in the longer term of these relationships start to have things like uh, gut, you know, in, irritable bowel syndrome, weight gain, insomnia. They start to develop all these 
physical symptoms like maybe chronic fatigue or um, uh, fibromyalgia. And what happens is there's such an incredible amount of stress and all the, the stress hormones that are being released in your body all the time when you're living with this abusive person that your body becomes inflamed. And then there's, you start off this whole system or you know whole cascade of things that happen in the body. And somebody might think, oh, I'm experiencing those, but they aren't connected to this abusive relationship I'm in. And they actually are very connected. So that's another thing to pay attention to is most people will feel like crap. Their bodies will start to tell them that they're not sleeping. They're constantly on edge. Um, and then one last thing I'll slide in because it's one last one important thing is post-traumatic stress disorder looks very different in people who are in these relationships. And one of the things that happens in survivors is that, so with, with someone with a traditional post-traumatic stress, one of the things that they experience is like flashbacks or memories of the horrible thing that they witnessed or experienced. Like it'll pop into their mind all the time or they'll be reminded of it. And so they're thinking of the horrible thing with people in these relationships. They, they remember the horrible things that their partner did to them, but they also have the intrusive thoughts of the wonderful things that they love about them. And it's like a it's like the, so this is what's happening. It's like, you're getting bombed with these like, oh my God, I love him so much. Remember that time we did this and all these great things. And then remember all that horror, you know, all the horrible stuff. So there's the cognitive dissonance and your brain is like having these moments of thinking of the positive stuff, which is actually a trauma symptom. But that's, none of us are realizing that's actually trauma. We're like, oh, but I love it, right? So those are just some of the big kind of generalized red flags that I would look for inside of yourself if you think that you're in a relationship like this. I'd love to hear you address why it's so hard to leave. I mean, it's, I, I've heard it takes like seven times to leave an abusive partner. Um, why is it so hard? Well, it's the cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. It is because over time, especially you, it, it, first of all, it keeps you in a trauma state, your amygdala and your brain, which is what keeps us in like fight or flight. When that part of our brain is active and engaged, the executive functioning part of our brain, where we can think rationally, we can manage our emotions and really think things through that part of our brain is not functioning. It is offline. They cannot both be working at the same time or you know, a good example is, you know, you're a cave person walking through the, through the forest and a bear comes running. You don't want the executive part, part of your brain um, or the executive functioning part of your brain online where it's like, hmm, what's the best way? Should I, I think this is two miles if I run this way. No, you want your amygdala to kick into gear and say, run up that tree right now. Don't even think about it. So that's kind of what happens is that part of our brain that, that's going to analyze and think clearly is shutting down. We are not accessing that when we are experiencing the trauma of cognitive dissonance. And, you know, sometimes there's the, the actual things of like, I'm afraid to divorce this person because then my kids are going to be left alone with them. Or I don't have any money. They have control over all of my finances. What will I even do? I've lost all my friends and family because they've isolated me. So there's the very real 
kinds of things that can make it very hard for people to leave. But most of all, it's this internal cognitive dissonance where there is this confusion and, and this, you know, this internal conflict over what to do. You know, what should I do? I'm gonna, I'm gonna align with the side of me that says I should stay. Um, so if you, you know, if this, just to people who are listening, if you're in that and you're having a hard time, you've got to reach out and talk to a therapist, but it cannot just be any therapist. Most therapists do not have specific training in this. You've got to talk to somebody who truly, truly knows how to work with this. Um, or um, if you're a friend or a family member and you're like, I cannot believe, why, can why isn't this person leaving? How could they put up with this? please understand why this is so hard. And maybe you can, you know, don't leave them, don't lose patience with them. Understand that you're dealing with a traumatized person. And if they could do it better, they would. But you can also share some of this information and help direct them or connect them to somebody that could help them um, be able to break free as well. Great. I, I remember talking to another friend and she just kept saying, um, can you believe he did this? And it's like, yeah, because that's what he's always done. I would be shocked if he did something else. And, you know, and the, with this one, I would just keep saying, why do you stay? Why do you stay? But I actually think she is a narcissist as well. And I think that they both get energy from each other. And that can happen, right? Yeah, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, yeah, so cognitive dissonance is, is huge. And I, it, it's interesting. I was also thinking about people who have loss often have that cognitive dissonance. Um, they remember only the good parts of a relationship when it was like, you wanted to yes. divorce him the entire time, but now that he's gone, yeah. he's some kind of saint. So I think, you know, we have this incredible ability to, like a survival skill in some ways, right? To be able to selectively um, remember things and feel certain things. And, and you mentioned before about what it feels like in our bodies. And I think we definitely don't realize how much our emotional state affects our bodies, but we also disconnect from our bodies all the time. Like we... Yeah just don't feel you know it's like we we are in order to survive it's like we just function from the head up and getting into our bodies is such an important thing like how does it feel and one of the things i i train my clients to do is to really start tapping into how do i feel in the presence of this person who do yeah. i become and i i had a friend who basically had lost touch with for many, many years after I got married. And I always thought she was jealous that I got married before her. And that's why she stopped talking to me. We, we, I, I felt really sad and I, I reconnected with her. And she told me that when I was dating and engaged to my husband, um, I was being controlled and she saw it and didn't know what to do. And so she stopped talking to me which made me very sad, but, yeah. but I, you know, she would, she was telling me things that I did not remember. Like yeah. you'd be on the phone with me and he'd say, hang up the phone. Mm -hmm. You know, these are signs that I didn't recognize at all back then in my twenties. Yeah. And so 
it's it was helpful to me to hear like who I had become and what mm-hmm. had me make the choice that I made to marry somebody like that. Yeah. Yeah. And such a good point you bring up. I think sometimes we're afraid to speak up to a friend and you will be doing that person a favor by sharing your concerns privately and let them know, like you still can be loving and patient if they are stuck. But I think because what happens is they get so confused and so like you just start to doubt your reality and because you're being gaslit and, and your brain is not clear that hearing it from other people, especially people that you're close to is super important because you can validate what's going on for, for this person. Um, so I think, you know, don't stay silent. Don't stay yeah. silent. These, these relationships do not get better. They only get worse. Absolutely. And I remember when my son was dating somebody with a, she was bipolar. She was, there were so many massive red flags and she was in a relationship with somebody who she never met, who was abusive to her. Hadn't yet ended it when my son got involved with it. I mean, it was just so, so many. And he was so completely involved that he was like, everybody's got faults. And, you know, um, it's not really a red flag. I mean, he, he didn't have the experience he has now, but he couldn't hear it. But I also didn't stay silent. <laughs> and over time, as things would come up, he would discuss them with me. And I would say that is really unhealthy behaviors. And he did the research on his own after this relationship ended so that he, he now sees in retrospect, wow. I fell for somebody who I would never fall for again. Like he, he saw what, what made him be with her and ignore these red flags and dismiss them as not important little minor things. And I think people do sometimes have, have trouble distinguishing between a true red flag and an annoying behavior or just something that doesn't work for you. And um, that's why it's important to really get clarity around what are the red flags to look for. As we close, I would love for you to share some tips for people who might be in a relationship right now with somebody who is narcissistic. What can they do besides finding a therapist who's trained in the field? What are some of the ways that they can begin to heal and move forward with their lives? Well, if you're questioning it, one technique that I think is really helpful is to, if you can safely do this, is to have a journal and to write everything down that you can. And I even did this, and I say this, like, please be safe. Some people are in relationships where if a journal was found, they they could be in serious danger. So please don't do that if you have no way to keep it fully safe. Another thing that's been helpful, and again, do this with safety, is to record conversations. And this may seem weird, and I'm sure there's a lawyer out there that's going to say, don't ever do that. But the gaslighting, the confusion, all these things that happen, you start to forget that's a part of trauma. And when you can go back and look, and especially in a journal, like, you know, that's always been helpful for me, where I could go back and say, oh, my God six months later, I'm still listening to the same thing. Like nothing is changing. It's only getting worse. So that way you can see over time the progression and you can also go back and remember things that you probably forgot. Um, So those those are some helpful things. Um, And I think 
listening and trusting your body. If you are having like, one thing I say is either you're very tuned into your body and you need to connect the dots. Like, okay, I'm feeling stressed. My, I'm not sleeping. I have all these physical symptoms. Um, or you're very disconnected from your body. That in and of itself is a red flag of trauma. And either you've had traumas in your childhood and or, or later on in life that made you be very disconnected from your body that needs to be addressed or you're experiencing it then in the moment. Because disconnecting like that is, is a way that, you know, it's dissociating essentially. So our bodies can tell us so much about what's going on, even if we don't know what's going on with our partner. And if we can learn how to listen to that, it will help guide us through um, any decisions that we need to make. So those are a couple of things. And really, I think one of the bigger pieces is, I know we said, you know, is a therapist. Like, list, it's, it's great to look online, but if you're already, if you're Googling online as my partner and narcissist, that's a gigantic red flag right there. Like, you might be dealing with somebody that has some issues and whether they're diagnosed or not, you know, think of that and you might need to get some help. Yeah, I find that most of the time when people ask questions, they already know the answer. Right. <laughs> you know, exactly. when they're posting things in my Facebook group, it's like, I just need you to tell me that I'm right. <laughs> you know, right. That, totally. Just that I'm not crazy, but that the, you know, I need I need some affirmations here or confirmation. Yes. Um, yeah, so so one question, these are all great tips, but if somebody wants to begin to listen to and trust their body and they're so disconnected and disassociated, can you walk people through a simple way to just start that process? Yeah, one quick thing that I like to use is what I call a five senses exercise. And that's where you can just, you know, find a comfortable place to sit and check in with all five of your senses. So what you can do is first just say, okay, you know, and I just put my hand up so I can think of all five. What is it that I'm seeing? You know, look around the room and name 10, 10 things that you can see. What is it that I'm feeling right now? Can I feel the couch underneath me or the floor beneath my feet? Or can I feel the muscles in my body even? What am I hearing? What are all the sounds in the room? What are the sounds outside of the room? What am I smelling right now? Is there a smell in the room? And even taste. Maybe you can taste something, drink some water, drink, you know, even just tasting the taste in our mouth. So that can just be, get you super present and tuned into your body. And then take some deep breaths, check in, just to start to say, okay, wow, I have a body. It exists. I can, I have all these senses here. So that's like a really quick, simple way to listen to the body. I love that. It's, it's a real mindfulness exercise where you really yeah. just tune in and um, it's very, very effective. So thank you for sharing that mm -hmm. and all this amazing information. It's, um, it's really eye-opening to hear that people who are attracted to these type of people or who attract in these types of people don't necessarily have to have a traumatic background um, but that the majority don't. And, you know, that, that if you have experienced any of this, you're not alone, there's nothing wrong with you. And there is a way to get help and to start attracting healthier relationships into your life. Cause these relationships are just so destructive. So thank you, Shelly. And, um, tell everybody where they can find you and find your book. Yeah. 
Um, thank you so much, Sandy. I really love talking about this and with you and all your experiences that you've had. Um, so I, you can check out my website at ShellyPumphrey.com and I'm assuming you might have that written down because my name is spelled Shelly with a C-H-E-L-L-I Pumphrey. So it's not easy to think of. Um, and there on there is information about my book. Um, it's going to be published in May. And we are right now in a pre-sale campaign where um, we're raising awareness about the book and um, trying to have people come in and, and support its launch with my publisher. So uh, that's on Indiegogo. But again, just go to my website, ShellyPumphrey.com. You can also find me on Instagram, Instagram at ShellyPumphrey as well. Thank you, Sandy. Awesome. Thank you, Shelly. As always, a wonderful conversation. So helpful. And um, thank you all for listening, for being a fan of the show. And if you love us, please rate and review us. Subscribe to the show. It always helps. And as always, here's to your last first date. If you are ready to get unstuck, gain new tools, become more empowered, and finally find your last first date, I'd love to talk to you. Fill out an application to be considered for a complimentary half-hour love breakthrough session at lastfirstdate.com forward slash application. That's lastfirstdate.com forward slash application. I look forward to talking to you soon.